Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, episode 73, the one about effective storytelling, democratic super trends, travel apps, and the film Alien. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I've said it before, but it is true that I hired my week to spend some time with man with also on the mission this time to keep marketing simple the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the host of the Rogerlog video series, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, fantastic. And Pascal, this is episode 73. It is. And we, I was doing some preparation for the show, as we do, you know, you and I share the, the work in terms of prep. And we are going to go back to the late 70s for film marketing with the ultimate sci-fi horror movie of all horror and sci-fi movies, Alien. Oh, Alien, what an incredible movie, which of course became an incredible franchise, didn't it? But the original film has got lots of personal memories for me, and I cannot wait to find out what you've dug up about the marketing <laughs> of, of the film. But before we get to Alien, Pascal, as always, we've got a lot of other stuff to get through. So shall we go straight into the news? Now, according to the Financial Times, NatWest, who launched small business bank Metal in 2018, has seen a fivefold take-up in users since the start of 2021, driven by a surge in startups launched during the pandemic. Apple's Coda has won the Oscar for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, making history as the first streaming service to win the accolade and beating Netflix in the process. Burger King in Brazil has launched a poop emoji ice cream product, yes indeed, to advertise the fact that its ice desserts are 100% free from artificial colouring and flavouring. Coca-Cola announces Zero Sugar Bite, a limited edition soda that promises to bring the flavour of pixels to life. They want people to taste the metaverse, and this launch comes with a special island on Fortnite. While the Incorporated Society of British Advertisers and the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising have both expressed a disappointment following the news that the government is set to sell Channel 4 before the next general election. Aldi is to donate 250,000 meals over Easter as the cost of living crisis deepens. Almost all food banks have seen a surge in demand since the start of the year, according to research from Aldi and the community giving platform Neighbourly. The World Federation of Advertising, WFA, has issued six guidelines to help brands make credible environmental claims and avoid greenwashing. And finally, Pascal, EasyJet has cancelled around 100 flights a day due to the COVID-related staff absences, including 62 from the UK, causing disruption to Easter holidays. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the news this week, Pascal, and a lot of it is obviously very, very topical and, and and fitting in with trends across the world now I, I didn't know whether i was going to go near the easyjet story but i'm just gonna just gonna lurk on that for a moment and it's interesting that easyjet was the first airline to drop the need for masks after the uk government decided that masks were no longer uh, compulsory as part of the pandemic restrictions 
Isn't it interesting that as a result of them dropping the mask, they're also now the first airline to be utterly riddled with um, COVID cases and they're having to cancel loads and loads of flight because of COVID staff-related um, absences? Indeed, it's clear that the headlines, particularly on radio, TV and newspapers, are very different and occupied by other issues around the world. But the number of COVID cases, let me just add to that. So today, for example, my car was booked for a service and we got the text approaching, apologizing to us that they could not go ahead with the servicing because their technicians were off ill with COVID. Yeah. If I look also at my diary, um, Roger, about the number of cancellations in terms of my training sessions due to COVID, it's just, just telling us that we've got to continue to be very careful and that the government made some decisions about what to do and what to remove in terms of some of the uh, preventative measures. And something tells me that we have to go back to it. Yeah, and, and of course, here in Scotland, we still have to wear masks. The mask okay. mandate doesn't come to an end until the 18th of April. But given all of what's going on, I can actually see Nicola Sturgeon maybe extending that even further. And the other one that caught my attention was this whole issue of the government going to sell Channel 4. Now, this is a really, really interesting story, and you need to do a bit of research before you form an opinion on it, to be perfectly honest. Now, I didn't actually realise that Channel 4 was a publicly owned company. Now, there is a famous clip um, of Nadine Doris, who's the culture secretary, being pilloried in a, in a um, parliamentary session where she showed her lack of knowledge as well about how Channel 4 is um, subsidised by assuming that the government actually um, funds it in the same way as they fund the BBC. But of course, it's not the case. Channel 4, if you actually do your research, was set up way back in the early 80s specifically as a platform to encourage independent film producers and independent TV program producers to create content which would then be broadcast by Channel 4. So Channel 4 was never actually set up to create its own content. It was just created as a platform for other content creators, which I think, you know, 40 years ago and the, and the tie into what we, we talk about with content marketing is absolutely fascinating. So what they are actually saying is they're going to sell Channel 4 off and actually, the knock-on effect could be that if it gets picked up by somebody like Netflix or, or Amazon or something like that, it could actually take away that content platform for all of those independent producers. So whilst everybody's getting het up about the fact that the government are going to sell Channel 4, I think a lot of people have missed the point that it's actually going to potentially affect a lot of independent producers as well. Absolutely. And for me, the, 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 the logic doesn't work. You know, there was obviously her embarrassing moment where, frankly, don't go into a meeting with other prep. I know that they're all very busy people, but it takes no, no time for one of your staff to put together a one-side of A4 summary, and you would know yeah. all the stuff that you mentioned. But actually, logically, there should be more channels like Channel 4, not less. Yeah. Now think about it because I'm sure it's also a source of revenue through advertising, through obviously the selling of international rights to showcase the series and the, the programs. I have no doubt that Channel 4 has also been the inventor of some of those chat shows and, you know, those kind of, um, what would you call them, uh, competition-led form of entertainment. So they sell the rights to other nations as well to do their own kind of white label version. So you've got all that going on. So actually, 
logically, but again, I'm applying false business logic when we're, we're addressing the government here. There should be another one and another one and another one and the whole network supporting different voices, different creators, not less. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the cynic would suggest that because Channel 4 is actually quite critical of the government quite a lot of the time that all of this is a very very uh, machiavellian plot mm. to actually remove um, a broadcaster that is actually critical of the government and the final news item that i wanted to home in on pascal was this issue of coca-cola announcing its new zero sugar bite now this is a limited edition soda a limited edition version of coke and again they're promising to bring the flavor of pixels to life and it's all really sort of trying to tap into this whole metaverse craze which is absolutely sweeping the world at the moment i mean there's not a day goes by <laughs> when uh, i don't see some stuff about nfts or web3 or this that and the other and, and as a side issue some of the bloated gobbledygook techno babble language that these companies are using when with regards to the metaverse is some of the worst copy and some of the most complicated copy that i've ever seen in my career of trying to stamp out complexity in marketing but maybe we'll come back to that another time now what's really interested is as you know I'm, I'm a Fortnite player and there is now a special island on Fortnite that you can go into to play games that you're all related to this coca-cola uh, special edition now the, the interesting thing again though is that I, su I suppose Fortnite itself is an, is an example of the metaverse it's effectively a virtual environment you control a character that runs around uh, obviously it's a it's a, a battle royale type game the idea to shoot other players but the actual environment is technically or not technically it is a metaverse and, and th therefore, it's very, very clever that Coca-Cola have created this special island within the Fortnite metaverse to promote this product. But the thing that I can't get away from is that the metaverse is an imaginary place. You still have to drink the Coke, whether it's a special metaverse version of Coke or not. You have to be sitting actually in the real world and drink it with your real lips. You cannot drink it in that well, I suppose you could that you could get the avatar to drink it, but you personally can't drink that. And and I just wonder whether that's one of the things that creates the doubts that people have about the metaverse, because we cannot experience the pleasure of having an actual drink in a in a in a um, artificial environment. Well, at least not until somebody invents the proper version of the Matrix. Yeah, and. I agree with you, you know, very clever because you might as well go where the audience is. So go on, on Fortnite or the Fortnite universe and, and be there potentially actually to get people to then move from Fortnite to the dedicated Coca-Cola island. Or I know that there's been some news around you can now buy a plot of land, all obviously virtual, on some dedicated um, online universes as well where the likes of uh, supermarket chains and so on have started to literally block uh, space for the future of the metaverse. For me, it's back to this idea of gamification. So I've played games where, you know, your avatar, your hero, once you complete the, the, the story, you can start again from the beginning. But what you can do is buy and spend actual money, like pounds and euros and dollars. You can buy equipment, you can buy outfits, you can sometimes look like you know, another hero from a different franchise and so on. And I wonder whether we're going to get to a situation which was where we were all those decades ago, if you recall, with Second Life, where you're going to be on Fortnite and literally you're going to spend 50 pence to buy 
a fictional virtual kind of Coke. Yeah, but you can't physically drink it though. <laughs> that's the big. That's the big thing that I can't get my head around. And maybe that's just because I'm an older guy, uh, and I have been accused of that on certain internet forums recently when I've been trying to discuss these things. But uh, I just can't get my head around the fact that yeah, who would actually want to physically buy an artificial version of something you can't actually consume? For me, the only option would be you bought the virtual version that gives you a voucher to go and buy the real thing. That that would yeah. be you know a, a nice way yeah. to go about it. So you complete a mission or Fortnite, you win virtual prizes, and you may be using QR code as we mentioned many a time on, on this show. Uh, we do that, but I, I'm going to say I'm going to hazard a guess that our viewers and listeners would be delighted to hear your rant about the metaverse. It's been a while, and it's been a good return to form. <laughs> <laughs> and and on that bombshell, I think, Pascal, we should actually close down our conversations about the news. But it was fascinating, nonetheless. Lots of really interesting stuff going on. Shall we slow things down, Pascal, and head into our content spotlights? In this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content. Now, it could be a video, it could be a podcast, it could just be an article. And we go into it in a little bit of detail. So, Pascal, what have you got for me this week? An article from a platform called digitalleaders.com. I believe this is the second time that I've used an article from them. Now, as a reminder, Digital Leaders, they're kind of information hub, event organizers, and think tank around what it means to be a citizen and of course, to work in public sector in today's economy and digital age, they look at the impact of AI, cybersecurity, 5G, health check, and of course, digital transformation, which is where I'm very interested. And I came across this article with a very intriguing title by Sean Roberts, who is the executive director of Civica, A Thriving Democracy in 2040, question mark, top three super trends. Now, I will confess that title was really intriguing to me, but on reflection, it's probably because also this Sunday we have the French elections and maybe I was thinking about it a lot or maybe, you know, the, the um, um, algorithmics, as Anton Deck would say, were playing their part. But the reason why I chose this uh, article in the context of a marketing and business development podcast is because I do believe that the subject of digital transformation is not limited to the world of business. And actually, we, all of us in business, can learn a lot from the efforts of those working in public sector around this side of the creation of digital services of online services that is also in the realms of our personal lives and citizenship so uh, Civicam ran a future thinking program through their north star lab as a bit of a backdrop for you and they brought together leading experts looking at this idea or this question of what do we need to do to address this idea of delivering a trusted a transparent and accessible democracy in the future. But for all of us, and for you and I, Roger, you could change the word democracy to a more business-related um, issue, and you will see that things are very, very similar. Now, the title mentioned three uh, top three super trends for this thriving democracy in 20 years' time, give or take, and the top three that the group came out with was digital voting, that's number one. Number two was threats, fraud, and meddling. And number three was accessibility, inclusion, and participation. And I would really encourage you, all of you, to click on the link in the show notes and read. It's like a, almost like a mini essay, but it really is thought-provoking. But you will see, all of you, the correlation between the discussion from uh, Civica and the experts and business 
and the need to engage with, with customers. When we look at super trend number one, digital voting, the question actually the group asked themselves is how is it that we have things like online banking, online shopping, uh, online medical services, particularly with, with COVID, what's happened, but somehow online voting is still meeting some resistance. And the conclusion was that there's still major concern about the security of online voting. There is obviously the risk about data, there's a risk about anonymity, and there's also potentially still to this day a challenge around digital literacy, which I know the digital leaders look at a lot, saying just because we are a mobile phone doesn't mean that we necessarily know how to use online services. There's also, which I didn't really consider, but you know, this is the world that we live in, the possibility that some people could be coerced to vote a particular way via mm. online um, kind of manipulation. <laughs> it takes you on to super trend number two, threats, fraud, and meddling. And my goodness, it doesn't have to be democracy. It's all part of business where we are forever, as we're becoming more and more digital, this idea of cyber attack, but also accidental kind of um, errors happening all the time. And what the group has said, you know, it is true that the more we are digitalizing our services, the more there's a threat to you know uh, things happening and meddling. But the number one thing that they have to we need to confront as a significant challenge is the apathy when it comes to voting and participation in the democratic process. So they just need to look at ways to tackle not just online, but also the steady decline of the um, voter turnout. Moving on to number three, accessibility, inclusion and participation. This is actually all from standing for an election as well as taking part in the wider democratic process. And there was a couple of quotes in there saying that even the um, RNIB has found through their survey that less than a third of blind voters were satisfied with the experience of voting at the May 21 election. So the group saying there's been significant improvements made over the years, but it must, must continue. So you read this article and you kind of go, because this is our lives, our future lives, Roger, for all of us, but the, the parallel with being in business, threats and frauds and meddling, accessibility, inclusion, this idea of doing things online as opposed to in a, in a physical world is very, very important. The kind of, there's many conclusions, but one that I thought was very relevant to our discussion today, the group recognizes that different groups in, would need to be engaged with different tactics, different messaging, and different channels. That we need to use imagination and ingenuity to find new and better ways to engage different audiences more effectively. If I was to also conclude a la 2 Geeks and Marketing podcast, for me, Roger, this is all about trust, it is all about corporate reputation, and this is all about personal branding. Because if we think about the lack of engagement in democratic processes because actually the subject matter and the very individuals involved in it are simply a major turnoff for audiences out there. Some really interesting stuff there, Pascal. <laughs> I almost don't know where to start. Um, I mean, trust is this big, massive, important thing. And I know we know a lot of marketers out there, you know, trust for them is one of the most important things that you need to build into your business, into your brand values, into your proposition. And I think we do live in a world at the moment where a lot of people don't trust government, they don't trust big corporates, uh, they don't trust them to do the right things. And it, it's, it's, it's sobering to read something like this, which suggests ways in which things can be improved. But the very fact that we've got to make 
governments and big corporates change their ways in order to get some of this stuff to happen makes me wonder whether it ever will. It's a big task. I mean, if we go back just for a moment on one of the news items about, you know, guidelines, let people basically tell people how to behave when it comes to making claims about, you know, their role in, in keeping the environment more green. The, the fact that you have to have the guidelines suggest that people are misbehaving. And I think that's really the point here. There's, there's um, poor behavior. There's also a poor history. I mean, if you think about data protection, you and I are old enough to remember the days of laptops left by uh, ministers on the underground. We know by the CD-ROMs going to the wrong people with gazillions of personal details. It's all been there. And when we think about particularly cybersecurity, there's still so many uh, people who are victims of fraud for no fault of their own. They've literally done nothing, but yet people are still managing to access their bank accounts and more. So there's a lot of work to be done on that side, and, let, and, and also on the just the, the appearance and the reputation of those working for government. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much work to be done. And it, it actually absolutely has to happen. Um, but, you know, daily I get telephone calls from companies trying to scam me. You know, the, the have you, you we uh, understand you've crashed your car phone call. Or even people phoning up and saying, uh, you know, you're going to get taken, you're going to get taken to court because you've got, outstanding tax payments you know people actually work for these scammers they actually work for it now i i can't pass comments on how desperate some people might be to earn money that they would be prepared to put their personal um ethics aside in order to work for a company like that but we've got a lot of work to do pascal to stamp a lot of the stuff out there that is eroding trust Oh, absolutely. So everyone, please read this article and you will see, as I mentioned many a time now, the parallel between the article and its kind of core theme, but also being in business and what it means to you. So Roger, what have you got for us this week then? Okay, well this is this is a short article. It's in Inc. Magazine by Alison Davis and the heading is The Surprising Way to Be More Effective at Storytelling to Engage Leaders, Colleagues and Clients Using This Simple Technique. Now, I keep coming back to storytelling, Pascal. I just, I just love it. You love it because we, we, we know that each week because we get so wrapped up in all of these films that we review. But the point that's being made by Alison in this is that obviously storytelling is so powerful, whether it's in a film or whether you're using it to, to sell your products or services or promote your brand. Everybody loves a good story. But I think that what Alison is saying is that when we say to somebody, create a story for your brand, create a story for your product or service. Everybody's mind immediately goes to things like Star Wars, Alien, that we're going to be talking about today, No Time to Die, whatever it is. And when you think about a story in that sort of scenario, you're talking about a two-hour film, probably with quite a few different plot lines going on at the same time different um, journeys for different characters and subplots and tangents and this, that, and the other. And, you know, you, it, it comes back to what I always say about keeping things simple. If you immediately think that in order to tell a story, you've got to be thinking Star Wars level, then it's likely it's either going to put you off or you're not going to be able to do it very well and it isn't going to work. So what Alison is saying is you don't need to try and create a Star Wars level story. You actually just need to focus on 
really simple stories. And that's the, the revelation. I mean, there's, it, you know, it, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but once you get that concept in your head that it can be a little story, then you can start listening to what people are saying in the office about your product. You can start listening to what customers are saying about your products and services and start to craft little stories around that you know it could be how joe from the it department overcame an obstacle which gave you an idea to create a service that you rolled out to the market you know and it's a story that could be told in 90 seconds rather than a two-hour movie and and allison just goes through a series of bullet points on things to look out for and i don't i just love the simplicity of this pascal and and it's going to take you a minute and a half to read this article it's not a long article but it is so thought provoking it gets you to bring your thought processes down from star wars down to almost like a, a, a 90 second snippet and and just to highlight this i'm going to take you back in time a little bit with a little bit of a story of my own back in the 90s i was involved in a financial services company and that financial services company launched a product it was an insurance product called self-assurance and I am credited as one of the co-inventors of this self-assurance product. And it was the first of its kind in the insurance industry at the time. And the original idea for that product came when me and the other guy who co-invented it was sat, ironically enough, in a Burger King bar on Princess Street in Edinburgh. And we were looking at the great big menu that was up on the on the board where you can choose to buy your Whoppers or you can buy the, the ready meal or whatever they call it, or your fries. And that was that sort of light bulb moment. And therefore, when we launched the product, we told the little Burger King story. Now, just this week, somebody emailed me on, uh, messaged me on LinkedIn to say that they were writing an article about the history of certain insurance products. Now, and that that's not interesting for a lot of people, but in the, in the industry it was. And he made reference to that Burger King story that I told in those presentations all those years ago. And that proves that little stories like that can stick and still be relevant 25, 30 years later on. Do you know, I, I'm going to once again thank you because this is the kind of articles I would use in my training sessions when mm -hmm. we talk about story because you're right, people hear the word story or they hear the word strategy and then suddenly yeah. it becomes this mountain that you have to climb uh, and it's kind of fascinating to observe. But you're back to one of my mentors many, many years ago said to me, don't just give me the data, give me the drama. And, and I use that phrase, as you know, during meetings and coaching sessions, because what people tend to do, informed and so knowledgeable about what they do and how they do it, they, they just they share statements of facts. And that's not memorable enough. We, we just mm. know that this, people have done the test over. But if you combine the data, as in the, the, the facts, with the drama, which is the mini stories, then people will take it away, tell others, but clearly, as is the case here, years, if not decades later, still remember it. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Storytelling is 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 one of my minor obsessions. I have to say, I just that's why I, I probably get drawn to articles and podcasts and videos that talk about storytelling. So, Alison Davis and Inc. Magazine, thank you so much for that inspiring article. Okay, Pascal, I think it's time for us to get a little bit more techy, don't you think? Shall we have a look at some marketing tech and apps? 
So, Pascal, what technical delights have you got for us this week? Oh, delights is the right term because I'm delighted to share with you something that came about as a query from a customer. Live streaming is something that I'm very, very interested in. You just, you know, kind of uh, help me with video and audio production, that itch that I've got all the time to look at new ways of doing things. But very often people say to me, I'm worried about the lack of participation. I'm worried that people are not going to be there or if they're there, they don't ask me any questions and then it becomes a monologue that I'm just not happy about it. And I was thinking about this and I think we need to maybe turn this around on its head a bit and talk about audience contribution and not audience participation because what I've observed on recent podcasts and indeed YouTube videos is that the the host or the co-host, what they do is that they introduce content and messages and information that they have received before the live streaming goes ahead which is why I've used the term audience contribution. So what they actually would do, Roger, is either play a short video message that they received from their audience and or they would play an audio message. So I've done some research and I have found two very easy to use apps and platforms that will allow you live streamers and actually even just, you know, pre-recorders like we are, you're not doing to get the audience to contribute, not just participate live. The first one is called Threadit. Threadit.app, which is essentially a Chrome extension. It is a Google product, which is um, also actually features in within your Gmail uh, account as well, which will allow your audience to create a short video clip and send you a hyperlink, a Threadit link, where you can watch the video, download, and play back during your show. The other one for audio-only messages, so that would be a voice message, I guess, is called SpeakPipe, speakpipe.com, which will allow your listeners to go onto a page which has essentially your show name and URL and record a 90-second voice message that you could then play back during the show and then you can be seen and heard reacting and responding to the message. So... I was able to send that to my customer within within a afternoon afternoon of of researching, but of course I was delighted to be able to add this onto this um, segment. Now, would you say, that, Roger, that you and I are men of action? I would have liked to have hoped so. <laughs> so I would like to announce that as of today, you and I are the proud owner of a Speakpipe account. Ah. And we're going to put the um, the link in the show notes, but also for our listeners here today. If you go to speakpipe.com and then forward slash two gigs and a marketing podcast, we're using the title case, so um, every word has an you know uh, an uppercase letter. You will be able to record on that web page a ninety second message and ask questions of Roger and I, or even make a suggestion in terms of the film or the content spotlight. But here we are. We are now online able to ask for contributions from our listeners and viewers fantastic Do you know speakpipe's been around for quite a while i Has remember it? using i remember using speakpipe for the marketing and finance podcast way back sort of i'm, I'm talking about 2014 2015 here and i think uh, the only reason i stopped using it is when i upgraded my website from whatever host it used to be on to wordpress or something i must have it must have been something that I didn't carry on over. But that's interesting. So if you have got a question for us, we would be delighted to hear the question. And obviously now you can use SpeakPipe to speak to us. Now, Pascal, um, you know, one of the things I love about the marketing tech and app section is sometimes an app 
or a platform comes along, which it just absolutely staggers me that somebody has thought that there is a need for this. <laughs> but then when you actually see it, you think that is just absolute and utter genius. Now, I thought that the world was the travel world was opening back up again. You know, I've seen people jetting over to um, San Diego recently for social media marketing world. Quite a lot of people that we know have been there. Quite a lot of my friends are now traveling again. And I've even have uh, had a few inquiries which would in entail travel uh, and then of course now we're seeing all these airlines are cancelling flights because of um, the covid going mad and we're seeing massive massive long queues at airports again i'm just thinking maybe i don't want to get back into that but if i did then what are the things that can make my travel easier now this is this app is called get grab get grab now have you ever been in the circumstance where you've been traveling and you've landed at an airport where you're not actually going to disembark from the airport into that particular city or even in that particular country it's simply an airport that you're transiting through now i've done that a few times uh, frankfurt is one of the um, examples paris charles de gaulle again i've been through paris quite a few times you land at gate b1 and your next flight departs from gate D10, which usually end up being at completely opposite <laughs> ends of the airport, which take you about half an hour of running to get to your flight. Now, imagine you're arriving at the airport, you haven't had anything to eat on the plane, you're absolutely ravenous, but you've really got to rush to the other side of the airport to get to the gate for your second flight. Now, this app, this app called Get Grab, you actually input into the app your arrival gate at the airport and your departure gate. And not only does it tell you the sh shortest route from gate A1 to D6 or whatever it is, it then tells you what the food outlets are along the route from A1 to D6. And if you see something you fancy, whether it's Burger King or whether it's Gordon Ramsay's um, Oak Cuisine, whatever it might be, you can then use the app to order some food from that particular outlet so that once you get to it on that route from A1 to D6, it will be waiting for you. Now, isn't that just unbelievable that somebody thought there was a need for an app like that? But I think it's just utter genius. Absolute it is, and I'm genius. just so annoyed that, once again, it's so simple and I wish I'd thought about it myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, I suppose the only downside is, is if, like me, you arrive at gate A1 at Frankfurt and have to depart from gate D6, it always seems to be that you've not got enough time and you're literally running, dragging your case, your, case, your wheelie uh, case or whatever it is, and you have to run like hell. The security queues are so long that you actually don't have time to get into get your food. But at least these guys are trying to make it easier so that it will be waiting for you. Um, the other um, uh, rabbit hole I went down this week as well was actually you, find, you might find yourself in a city where you have a meeting um, you might check out of your hotel early in the morning, you have a meeting, and then you've got quite a long time to wait until your next flight. Um, or uh, you, you just need somewhere to go and work. Now, obviously, you could go and work in a cafe. But if you're going to the airport anyway, you could buy yourself lounge access. Now, some people are lucky enough to have shiny British Airways executive cards or frequent flyer with Delta or whatever it is that give, gives you access to those airline lounges. But of course, at airports, a lot of airports actually have sort of pay for entry lounges that you can just go in as a one-off. And um, there's one at Edinburgh Airport it's called the Aspire Lounge. And this this 
website it's called loungebuddy.co.uk just allows you to browse the world's airports and if you think oh i've got about four hours in frankfurt or four hours in paris charles de gaulle you can use this app to buy yourself access and you can get in there do some work have some free drinks have some free food whatever it might be and and again it you know it's not for everybody you know some people might prefer to go and um, sit in a coffee shop um, and go to the airport later but it's an option the only thing about it is is that i did go down and have a look in quite a lot of detail at this and i think this must be in its early stages because quite a lot of the airports it lists the lounges that are available but you can't actually book it using this app so i think they've got a bit of work to do to get it working properly but i thought both of those were just great ideas they are and i've just realized now somehow over the course of 73 episodes you've done a fair share of research on kind of travel-based and, and work-based apps so maybe we should uh, look into a roger edwards special like a compendium <laughs> of the best apps linked with travel and working remotely it's just wonderful uh, i love it i love all of them thank you and of course we always say this don't we pascal that we owe a great debt to all of these people who have these creative ideas and create apps and platforms like this and quite a lot of those apps and platforms were conceived way back in time so let's set the controls of the tardis let's fire up the flux capacitor let's get back in time for this week in history In 1894, Thomas Edison demonstrated a kinetograph, the first practical moving picture camera, and the kinetoscope, the single viewer hand crank display units to watch the resulting films. Now, these inventions were for the most part developed by his employee, William Kennedy Laurie Dixon. In April 1970, the famous message, Houston, we have had a problem here, is sent by astronaut Jack Squiggott following the explosion of an oxygen tank aboard the service module Apollo 13. The crew was forced to use the lunar module as a makeshift lifeboat, and they were stranded for four days. Oh my goodness. Well, in 1974, ABBA wins the 19th Eurovision Song Contest for Sweden singing Waterloo in Brighton, England. And of course, their virtual concert tour starts this summer in London. Wow, nearly 50 years later. In the year 2000, the heavy metal group Metallica sues Napster alleging copyright infringement and racketeering. This lawsuit, later joined by Dr. Dre, as well as other lawsuits from the RIAA, eventually caused the original Napster service to shut down and file bankruptcy. However, the Pandora's box that Napster opened could not be closed, and digital distribution changed the music industry forever. It did indeed. So, Pascal, back in 1970, Houston, we have a problem. That led to quite an exciting real-life event, which, of course, became a film later on. Do you remember that actually happening? No, I was only a one-year-old, not even that, ah. that much. But what I will say is, this is what I love about this segment, because you learn something. I was absolutely convinced that the, the message was, Houston, we have a problem. And clearly so, it wasn't. Yeah. Houston, we've had a problem here is the full version, uh, which I think is Brett, you know, we, sh we should all stand corrected, but it's been used now f across, uh, you know, all manner of incidents across life for decades and uh, in, in work, in life and so on. You know, Houston, we have a problem where you ring someone to say your car's broken down all the way to walk into the boardroom to tell your boss that the marketing campaign has gone really, really bad. Uh, I absolutely adore the film, April 13, uh, directed by Ron Howard. And, um, if you watch also, if you have the um, DVD 
the collection, all the extras are just wonderful about how much to research the, the real story. But for me, and I think in a way the film perhaps didn't convey that, to be stranded for four days, not knowing whether you could come back to Earth, it must have been really quite scary. I think the mental torture must have been mm. horrendous. I mean, it's not an environment that many human beings have ever been in to be out there in space. And and yeah, to, to have all of that going through your mind at the same time as trying to solve the problem that you had it is remarkable. A, again, isn't it interesting how a lot of these phrases that we think um, are different actually to what was actually said like you've said there i've always thought that it was houston we have a problem um in fact in the first take of that of that particular sequence i actually said that and that's why we had to retake <laughs> it um that it just goes to show i mean there are other yeah, other examples in, um, in the film casablanca i don't think humphrey bogart ever said play it again sam and yet everybody associates play it again sam with Humphrey Bogart in, in Casablanca, and I'm sure there are all sorts of other examples of phrases which we think are attributable to films or whatever it might be, but actually we've we've changed them Chinese whispers like over time. It's a bit like but, uh, you know when you you know a song or you think you know a song and yeah. you kind of sing it with your friends and they kind of go, "What on earth are you singing?" So, well, <laughs> yeah, these exactly. are the words. It's another note. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and talking about songs, isn't it interesting? Uh, I mean, I can't believe that it was it's uh, 22 years ago since Napster was um, forced into liquidation by the by the lawsuit started by Metallica. But it, it, what really in, interests me a lot about uh, all of this was started because of their desire to prevent copyright infringement. And some people criticise Metallica a lot for doing that, you know, and thinking that they actually did the wrong thing, even though they were protecting their own intellectual property. But it still goes on today, Pascal, because, as you know, a lot of people uh, put up um, it, videos on YouTube of concerts that they've been to, or they do analysis of songs. They'll do a critique of this new Genesis single or this new um, Heart single, whatever it might be, and they'll they'll analyse the guitar parts, they'll analyse the drumming parts, and some of those bands will hit those creators with copyright strikes. And, of course, you can get banned from your having a YouTube channel if you get a certain number of copyright strikes. There are other bands out there who just think, do you know what? If somebody does a critique video of our new single, analyzes the drum part, analyzes the guitar part, hey, it's free publicity. We're not going to do anything about that. And it would, it would it's interesting. I, I would like to know, are the bands that go after everybody who tries to use their stuff and, and effectively are infringing their copyright I wonder whether they actually end up richer than those who just let it go and effectively get the, the free publicity. Uh, I would imagine also that they'd be using automated services anyway, so they won't mm. even know uh, as the mm. artist who and when strikes and, and kind of disputes are, are starting. And then they just may get a report once a year if they ever ever see that. I think for me, the, the, the Napster thing, was, it, it was correct that, you know, they, this was theft, as simple as that. You know, people yeah. were uploading copies of their the CD that they bought and the world were just, you know, kind of harvesting the, the content. And that led to also all the bootlegging in different nations like, you know, the Far East and um, mm -hmm. South America and so on, where, again, it's much, much harder to, to get the copyright laws to be applied. The... 
it was also a sign that the music industry was way, way behind the, the curve when it came to the consumption and the, the online distribution. Um, so, but you're right, it, it feels it was a lot longer than two, 20 years ago. In my memory, it says it was the 90s even. So interesting that we should revisit that. Interesting. So many of the things in the past that shape our present. And we always say this on the show, but it's always interesting to look back in time to see how apps that were developed back in time have shaped the landscape of marketing and filmmaking in the present day. So talking about the present day, let's bring ourselves back to the present and let's do some creator shout outs, Pascal. Okay, Pascal, who are you going to talk about this week? Now, this gentleman is going to be very, very surprised to be included into the creator's shout-outs, but it says this is well-deserved. John Holmes Carrington, we've known each other for many years, is primarily my go-to consultant for all things innovation and international. He's also very, very busy in the world of creative, and he helped me enormously um, about 10 years ago, I'm going to say now, to make my way to Los Angeles to attend the American film market. So I'm really always indebted to him and I thank him enough to A, give me the, the impetus, but also the support that, that I needed at the time. But what I didn't know until very recently is that John Holmes Carrington is also an author and a contributor to a series of anthologies titled Harvey Duckman Presents. And these are essentially a collective of authors, short story writers, who are writing in genres such as sci-fi, fantasy, steampunk, and horror. And the reason why I thought it would be really, uh, it would merit a shout out for John Holmes Carrington is because this is proving my point to all my customers that if you want to kind of stretch those creative muscles, if you want to explore storytelling, maybe you need to step away from work from time to time and do something that is a passion project, do something that's going to really make you smile. And so, so really it's what it's all about. I like the idea of somebody that I know primarily for the, from the world of business, innovation and creativity, who is also looking at um, probably his own kind of other forms of talent and writing the, those short stories. So this was the anthology number nine, um, Harvey Duckman Presents, and the artwork is exquisite. In fact, um, I wouldn't be um, mistaken to, the, to think that the artwork and the front cover is very much inspired by Lovecraft and Cthulhu. So that's very, very interesting indeed. So John Holmes Carrington, thank you again for all the amazing support you've given me and many businesses you know, in the region, but also so, so pleased to have discovered you know, this talent of yours as an author and contributor. My shout out this week, Pascal, is for Tom Bailey, and he runs a podcast called Succeed Through Speaking. Now, hands up, I have to say that I've recently appeared on this show. Um, so, you know, some people may see I have a vested interest in giving it a shout out, but actually it's a really good show. And I have listened to quite a lot of episodes even before I was invited to speak uh, on it. And one of the things I do like about this podcast is that it's quite a short one. Now, different podcasts, different lengths. The, 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 uh, my own marketing and finance podcast is around about 35 minutes. Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast is usually about an hour, an hour and 10 minutes, albeit split into um, digestible chunks. This one tends to be around 10 to 15 minutes. So it's definitely the more snackable of, of podcasts. And there is obviously certain um, 
situations where that's absolutely perfect you know just uh, nipping down the road to the shops or something like that you haven't really got time to settle down and listen to two geeks in a marketing podcast for an hour you just want something for 10 minutes so i just love the format and he asks good questions and he's had some great guests me being one of them of course so if you are looking for some great speaker tips how to build your speaker business, how to put a presentation together, how to actually run the business of speaking, then check out Succeed Through Speaking podcast with Tom Bailey. Super. Oh, thank you very much. And you're right. This is what's so exciting this moment in time. It's so varied. It's so diverse. You know, um, the two examples today, different length, different styles, different formats, and they are all there as a source of inspiration for all of us to discover our voice and sometimes a talent that we have away from work. Absolutely right. Now, Pascal, you teased this right at the start of the show. We are going to talk about one of the most frightening but one of the best sci-fi movies ever it was released in 1979 so let's move into film marketing alien in space no one can hear you scream this film was released in 1979 and believe it or not pascal has managed to track down the actual teaser trailer from all those years ago so let's give it a watch Wow, Pascal, how many memories did that bring back for you? I still get good spimple from the sound design, that, that siren and, and that real space um, kind of almost escape, you know. It, it's just unique. And you say that this was probably the, the best sci-fi movie of all times. I, I agree with you. I go back to it so, so many times. I mean, I love pretty much all the episodes of the franchise, you could argue, even the crossover with the... Um, Predators and Swan, but that one is to me what science fiction is is all about. Uh, I mean, we'll talk in a moment about everything that makes Alien work, but you're taken to a different space and time, literally. But the characters are so relatable, and they are uh, as ever not to you know what's happening today, what was happening back then in the seventies and the eighties. But the effort in the design of the Nostromo, the effort in the design of the creature, the music, the 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 the, the, the um, universe that they enter, it is just unbelievable. And all those years later, it's near perfection. Mm, absolutely and i can remember back to 1979 and this film was one of the ones i wanted to see more than <laughs> any but the fact is pascal it was 
it was the equivalent in 1979 of what an 18 is today at the cinema. I think in those days it was called an X, an X for the fact you had to be 18. And I wasn't 18. In fact, I'm trying to think I was probably 14 at the time. So I couldn't go to the cinema to see it. I had to wait until it came out on VHS. And, and and I heard people, family friends who'd been to see it and they were raving about it. Even some of my friends who looked older than me, unfortunately, I, I did definitely look 14. There's no way I could have pretended and snuck <laughs> in. Um, so some of my friends did sneak into the cinema and saw it and they were raving about it and I couldn't go to see it. My first experience with Alien was actually the graphic novel. Uh, my mum and dad bought me the graphic novel and so I was intimately aware of the story. Uh, I even read the uh, Alan Dean Foster book as well. But the graphic novel, the artwork was absolutely incredible um, and obviously took a few liberties with the size of the alien in, in the pictures. And, and it wasn't until it actually came out on VHS that I finally managed to see the actual film itself. For me, it was a very dodgy copy on the VHS cassette. That's my friends of Alien, which meant that Ashley was very hard to see anything. And, and yeah. it took really, actually, the fact that when I bought the director's cut on VHS cassette, to be able to see what was going on, particularly near the end, it was so dark. And, and actually, that's one of the qualities of the film, the way in which Ridley Scott uses the lack of light as well as the presence of light, which I think is, is just makes the movie beautiful to watch as well and some of the extra extra close-ups and so on and, and then like everybody else when i went through to dvds to blu-rays that i have now obviously the um the latest edition and because of the aesthetics because of the effort uh, for me you know a crafting point of view of the sets and the stories and so on it's a movie that you watch more than once clearly and you discover mm. something new every single time because just on the set design i mean when i got the blu-ray edition i could see things for the first time like many others that i'd not seen before it's just it, it continues to be a revelation this movie to me and it's just um, wonderful yeah and i had a similar experience because when i got the vhs hired it from blockbuster or whatever it was like you it was very dark and I was slight, I have to say, I was slightly disappointed that I couldn't see everything because I'd read the graphic novel so many times and the illustrations in the graphic novel of the alien and the and the environment, especially the, the, um, the derelict spacecraft, were so well drawn that when I actually saw this video on VHS and I could hardly see anything, I was genuinely disappointed. I was expecting more. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It wasn't until better quality um, versions of the film came onto VHS and then DVD later that you could actually revel in the astonishing design, both of the sets and, of course, the sound as well. 1979, clearly very, very different times. The world was very, very different. And I've used that as a bit of a hook and a, and a, and a threat through for today's conversation because we could be talking about what they did over the years to keep promoting the brand and the movie. But I want mm. to imagine what it was like when, for example, my dad opened the newspaper and that was the advert for, for Alien next to Mad Max, next to all the other movies, and having to decide whilst I was kind of trying to, you know, almost look over his shoulder, thinking, 
I was far too young to, to go. And he was talking to his friends about, do we go to see Mad Max? Do we go and see um, Alien? Now, interestingly, the, the term Alien was kept uh, for the international audience, but they had to also qualify because it has... Well, if you don't speak English, it has no meanings to you in France or in Spain, whatever. So in France, it was Alien, the eighth passenger. So there was this idea of... Um, you have obviously a number of passengers, and then there was an eighth one that was um, not welcoming. And you and I have watched the movie so many times, so we know about Dallas, we know about Ripley, Clay Lambert, Brett Kane, Ash Parker, and Jones Decat. You've got you've got that assemble the crew of the Nostromo, but then there's the intruder, and what an intruder um, that is. So in 1979, there was almost this uh, ultimate kind of um, marketing pack that they worked on, but which was extracted from the movie. So Neil and I have done some uh, marketing commentaries where we sometimes wonder what on earth happened because clearly people didn't understand what they had. What was, I would go as far as saying it's almost an example of content marketing before people knew what it was because the movie was made and out of the um, execution of the movie, they took out what was needed to market the film. So you had the, almost the ultimate film marketing trifecta of the title and the calligraphy. I think that was very, very important. The quotable strap line that you started with. And of course, that very eerie sound design and kind of oral scape, which is its own form of audio branding. And I used to own the um, Alien CD, just to listen to the music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there's one scene in the film that I remember, um, and it's uh, it was the guy who wore the the peak cap. Yep. Was it Lance Lance Erics, Erickson or something like that? Um, and he's walking down one of the uh, utility corridors in the Nostromo, and it's actually raining. It's actually yeah. raining in the film in the spaceship, and the sound of the rain, and of course. He gets he gets got by the alien in that particular scene, but the sound again that it created such a frightening atmosphere, and I think that we don't give filmmakers like this enough credit for the sound design as we do for. I mean, let, let's face it the the set the set design and the the monster design in Alien are maybe have never been bettered in the history of cinema. It's just incredible. Uh, but we shouldn't forget the sound design as well and give them equal credit. Now, the, the, the scene, actually, I love it because, again, it's about texture, it's about reflection. So the, the, the actor you're trying to remember was Harry Dean Stanston playing the, the character the one, of, the of Brett. And, and of course, just quickly, this is about marketing. We need to move on. We can't become an alien <laughs> review. Um, but, of course, the artist, H.R. Geiger, who created really a creature that, um, you're right, has never been equal. So in terms of the um, the marketing, what was interesting is 20th Century Fox were the financiers and distributor, and two years earlier, they had the surprise success of Star Wars, 1977. Mm. And you can tell that there was an attempt on their part to recapture that moment, that surprise success, but they also learned, obviously, from what they did with Star Wars. So I would argue that's probably about uh, nine key elements to the to the campaign of 1979. So you had the teaser trailer, which we listened to and watched again. I mean, talk about simplicity, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's iconic, isn't it? And, and maybe we're looking back on it through rose-tinted spectacles to a, to a certain extent. But remember what I said. This was one of the, the films I wanted to see most 
desperately in advance of anything else. And maybe it was tempered by that fact that I wasn't old enough to go to the cinema to see it, but it was the iconic image of that egg with the with the green glow around it and that strap line in space no one can hear you scream i mean it's so tempting it's so it teases you so much it's almost painful and and that that's sound again and what what is fascinating is that they used an egg i mean a chicken egg really and i don't know whether there was some lack of time lack of resources but they never went actually to change it to the actual uh, creation by Richard Geiger with the face hugger. They just sticked with the egg, you know, just move yeah. on. Then yeah. later people could watch what we're going to call the extended trailer where there were scenes from the movie, but yeah. no dialogue, just that music from Jerry Goldsmith, just that siren, the sense of peril. Um, I mean, for me, the Nostromo is almost like the, the kind of haunted, haunted castle type themes, you know, and that was very good. So they had that. And what they did in pure content marketing uh, form, they just then made some shorter version. So they had mm -hmm. teasers for uh, TV and keeping the atmosphere. They had uh, TV spots, you know, with the, uh, the, the title Alien. They even had, obviously, you would expect them, some localized radio and TV spots for different nations. And I've got a bit of a surprise for you, Roger. No. Thanks to the hard work of fans around the interweb, a gentleman called Mark H. and also Screen Rant, somebody managed to dig out the 1979 UK uh, radio spots promoting actually the <laughs> premiere in London. Would you like to have a listen? Oh, we, we, we just have to, Pascal. Get it on. <laughs> Intercepted transmission of unknown origin. Transmission? Out here? SOS. Human. Unknown. Alien. Certificate X. Exclusive engagement at the Odeon Leicester Square. Now. Any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. In space, no one can hear you scream. Twentieth Century Fox presents Alien. Starts today. Odeon Leicester Square. Late night show tonight and every night at 11.45 p.m. Alien. Certificate X. In space, no one can hear you scream. Isn't that delightful? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it confirms what I said. It was an X certificate, so my memory wasn't cheating me there. But uh, yeah, even just hearing that snippet of music there made the hairs on the back of my neck bristle. <laughs> it's that package. So you, you have the teaser, you have the, the longer version, you have then very short version for TV and radio. Then you've got the poster, which is what I saw in the newspaper when my dad was reading it. And again, the simplicity. It feels almost as though it was the, um, what we call a concept artwork. But then someone yeah. said, don't mess with it. It's fine. Let's go. And that's a temptation, is it, for marketers to keep tweaking and changing things when actually the first iteration works really well. Yeah, absolutely. And we know how much I love simplicity. It's, it's what I base my entire marketing consultancy on. But this is such an example of how simple can work so powerfully. The other element of the campaign that I wasn't aware of until I did the research was as a PR stunt, as a PR coup, they actually created um, prints in 70 millimeters. So typically people will know 35 
is the way in which movies are being projected. But suppose this was the IMAX of the time, Roger. They actually created 91 special premieres inviting, uh, you know, kind of the media as well as people who would be deemed to be influencers using today's parlance. And they had premieres. The first one was on the 25th of May 1979. And Star Wars fans will know that two years prior, on the 25th of May, this was the premiere of Star Wars using a similar print of 70 millimeters. But at the time, 20th century folks didn't know they had, obviously, a success on their hands. So it was just a handful of prints at that size, where this time they went for nearly, nearly 100. So I, I don't really know much about actual film. So is a 70 millimeter sort of like the equivalent of 4K for films? That would be my equivalent. So when, you know, the the posters were out and people were able to see on the on the side or in big letters, 70 millimeters, that's the same yeah. way you and I would react to go, oh, uh, IMAX, uh, IMAX 3D, let me go yeah. and see the Batman. So that was a, a bit of a marketing ploy, but also a coup to invite um, audiences and people who would review the movie to sit on the big screen with probably also that amazing sound design. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I don't think I've ever... I was probably aware of that, Pascal, but I hadn't really quite um, worked it out. So that's the marketing part. But of course, there's more done for the media to talk about the films. Remember that, as a bit of trivia, this was meant to be a B movie as a sci-fi. And, and if it wasn't for Ridley Scott creating storyboards that got the financiers at 20th Century Fox to get excited to double his budget, that could have been a very low-key affair. Now, I discovered, and this will please you, that Alien premiered in the UK at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Ah, Fascinating. It was uh, literally a week before the premiere at the Audion Leicester Square, where we just heard a moment ago the, the radio. And then there was premieres in France, in Spain, and so on and so forth. But there was also a um, kind of syndicated 23-minute interview with Sigourney Weaver, Ridley Scott, Tom Skerritt, and H.R. Geiger. So bringing, as you can see here, the artist as well as the actors to create uh, a bit of momentum here. As an Edinburgh resident, that's that's great. Obviously, I wasn't an Edinburgh re resident then. I was living in Blackpool at the time, but it worked. The Edinburgh Festival, powerful stuff. It's quite a, you know, a coup. So... All the reasons for the media to talk about the movie, well, you mentioned it a moment ago, are rated in the US, X rated in, in the in, in the United Kingdom, M rated in Australia. So all the letters in the alphabet were being used. And, and again, from a marketing point of view, go, oh, let's be careful not to exclude audiences. But actually, no, you've got to stick to you know the audience you want to attract. And an alien, I mean, frankly, so frightening. I, I would hate to think if somebody uh, under the age of uh, 18, maybe 12 or 11, saw it, would have been frightened to death that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, having said that, it's more of a, I mean, apart from the, the infamous scene where the um, alien um, air baby comes out of John Hurt's stomach, which is gra graphic in the extreme, obviously, it isn't as gory as a lot of films these days, which would probably have, um, 15 ratings or even 12A ratings. No, they're very true. I think it's the tension and, and yeah, at the yeah. very end when Ripley has to, she's trying to blow up Nostromo, has that failed attempt. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, 
yeah, I'm reliving the scenes in my head as I'm talking to you. But all the reasons sometimes for the media to talk about the movie were not, uh, obviously, under the, the control of the producers. So you had the situation where when they had the premiere in, in Hollywood, that uh, famous Grauman's Egyptian theatre, they had an alien set which was burned by vandals because they say that uh, the movie uh, was a work of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really funny. And then let's finish this um, marketing roundup with merchandise. Now, let me re- remind you that 20th Century Fox had the surprise success of Star Wars. Mm. But very cleverly, as we know, this is stuff of legend. George Lucas was the one to keep the rightful merchandise. So they say, let's not make the same mistake again. Let's go ahead and produce merchandise for the Alien movie. So there was the aforementioned uh, novelization you mentioned from Alan Dean Foster. There was both an adult and a kind of kid-friendly version. One that I would love to get my hands on, this would probably cost so much money, the um, Heavy Metal magazine published a graphic novel adaptation, but also almost like a behind-the-scene a story and an alien calendar. The one that um, surprised me a lot, bear in mind that this is an R-rated or X-rated um, movie, there was also official Halloween costumes, and you could also, through Kenner, who got the rights to do the Star Wars um, kind of merchandise, there was also some alien-inspired toys for children. Uh, th- that just boggles the mind on this one. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm sitting here now thinking, I I had that heavy metal graphic novel. That was Did the you? thing that... That was it. That was what I was reading before the video came out, before I could actually see the film. I, I read that graphic novel so many times, and I'm now sitting here thinking, is it in a box somewhere? It probably <laughs> isn't. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's, it's, uh, it's long gone, but you never know. I might have to go and have a bit of a rummage in the cupboards this weekend. <laughs> So thinking about Alien 1979, you and I would agree that this is the go-to movie if you want, if you want to understand uh, storytelling, if you want to understand set design, characterization, and everything. I didn't expect that would also get some important marketing lesson because, let's be frank, it's a long time ago and things have really changed, but we've got that perfect marketing pack. You've got this idea of, Stay in your lane, and you will compete against the likes of Moonraker, Star Trek was out, that year, Mad Max, Apocalypse Now. And also, yeah, learn from the past. So 20th Century Fox did try to recapture the surprise success of Star Wars. Maybe went a bit too far with merchandise, but we can forgive it. But for me, the the number one kind of lesson is this idea of creating a sense of event for the, the media as well as for the, the, the moviegoers with that 70mm print, um, which they went to scale. So, um, yeah, it's been absolutely delight to go back through this movie with you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and simplicity as well, Pascal. We come back to that, you know, and the hook in space, no one can hear you scream. Didn't it sound menacing when that guy said it in the, in the um, radio adverts that we just listened to there? Uh, I'm sure the guy who did the voice for that also did those 80s nuclear war um, things in the Frankie Goes to Hollywood video. You know, if you hear the air attack warning, you and your family must take cover. It sounds like him. Such a menacing voice. But when he says that phrase, in space no one can hear you scream, again, as I say, the hairs bristle on the back of your neck. Fantastic choice, Pascal. Thanks for bringing Alien back to the table. No problem at all. Pleasure. You know, of course, 
I usually end up watching the films that we talk about on Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast the night before, but actually Alien isn't anywhere that I could find on the interwebs apart from some obscure um, wow. platform that I, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually a member of. And I don't actually have, I'm pretty sure I don't actually have a DVD or Blu-ray copy anywhere. I think we've got Aliens and, beyond, and further on, but not the original. So that will have to be remedied very, very soon. Everyone, thank you so much for watching or listening to Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. It's always a pleasure to share our experiences with you. Please let us know what you think of the show in the comments. Look us up on Twitter. Ask us questions. Don't forget what Pascal said earlier about SpeakPipe. You can now ask us questions and leave us questions on the Two Geeks website. Until the next episode, please do go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm-hmm.